If you have your Bible today, please turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And if you're here last week, you might remember that we began a study. Um, and that is not the right text up there, nor the right name. I don't know why that's up there. So, anyway, just listen. Don't look. Hopefully the right text will be up on the screen here in just a little bit. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And we will begin, or we will continue our series that we began last week on the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, last week we began by looking at the birth of uh, John the Baptist that was foretold. And this week we're going to be looking, uh, really it's the next installment in the Gospel of Luke and, and the life of Jesus. And this is going to be the birth of Jesus being foretold. And it's interesting because Luke is pretty unique amongst the gospel writers for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is because he includes a lot of stuff that none of the other gospel writers do. For instance, if it wasn't for Luke, there was a lot of stuff about Jesus' early life we wouldn't have recorded. So, for instance, of the four gospels, there are only two that have any kind of birth narrative. Okay, Mark, he's a real, I think he may be a type A personality because his favorite word is immediately. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark sometime, just pay attention. It's all immediately. This happened then, immediately this happened. And he is just a real real uh, abrupt go-getter. And he starts out with the ministry of Jesus. John, of course, starts out in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. And, and so on and so forth. And he kind of goes from that on into Jesus as an adult. So Matthew and Luke are the only ones that have any kind of birth narrative. And Luke tells us a lot of stuff that Matthew does not. So, for instance... When you think about the, uh, the Christmas story, we, we, we like to think about the, the shepherds as they're out watching, uh, keeping watch over their flock by night, and, and, and the angel of the Lord uh, uh, appeared before them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and, and they were terrified. You remember all this? And they were sore afraid, and, and the angel said, uh, you know, don't, don't be afraid, I bring you good tidings of good joy, uh, great joy which will be for all people, for day in the city of David, so on and so forth. That's only in Luke. The, the, the command of the shepherds to go and, and find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, that happens in Luke. When we, you think about the, the, there's only one story, one account of Jesus as a child. You remember that one? When he was 12 years old, he went. He got left behind in the, uh, the, the the family gone to a feast in Jerusalem. He had stayed behind. The family had had gone on. Thought he was with some of the the rest of the caravan. He stayed in Jerusalem. That's the only account that we have of Jesus's early life as a child. That's only found in Luke. So Luke tells us a lot of stuff that the the other gospel writers, the the, the rest of Scripture does not tell us, including what we're going to read today. And so what I want you to do is I want you to, to, uh, to it's, it's a familiar passage, but I want you to, to understand that this is a, a section that's unique to Luke. Now, that doesn't mean that it's false because it's only found in one place. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to point out that he gives us dif- different details and different uh, uh, situations, different um, uh, incidents in the life of Christ than other, other gospel writers do. One of the things you'll also notice is that Luke alludes to a lot of Old Testament passages, but he doesn't spell it out. So in Matthew's Gospel, for instance, Matthew will say something about, we'll say, the birth of Christ, that's what we've been talking about, and then he'll say, this, is, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet, and then he'll give the quotation. 
Luke doesn't do that, but he does allude to a lot of passages. And if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, sometimes we miss that. And I'm going to try and, and highlight a couple, of those, uh, a couple of those passages along the way. So what I want you to see in our text today is that in the birth of Christ, the, the, the Son of God, it's a unique event in history, and in it, God is beginning the next step in the plan of salvation that was begun so many years ago. So if you found Luke chapter 1, I'd ask you to stand with me if you're able. We're going to pick up in verse 26 and read down to verse 38. It says, Now in the sixth month, so that's not talking about the month of June. That means, you remember, uh, in the passage right before this, Elizabeth, Mary's relative, was pregnant, miraculously pregnant. And so she kept herself secluded for five months in the sixth month, so the sixth month of her pregnancy, the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, you shall name him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thank you. You may be seated. What you see in our text today is a peculiar pregnancy, a peculiar pregnancy. Pregnancy, and, and, and right at the beginning of this account, there's a fact that's repeated three times just so we don't miss it. There is, is, it occurs twice in verse 27 and then once in verse 30, 34. And that is that Jesus was to be born of a virgin. Now, no matter how you cut it, that's different. That is peculiar. That is unique in history. And, 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 and there's a lot that we could focus on here, but I want to highlight just a couple things. First, Luke does not highlight the fact like Matthew does, but it has to be in the forefront of his mind that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, to a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in Christ, Jesus, uh, Jesus was God in the flesh. He was literally God with us. Now, now that's... That, that's really the focus of this section. It's the virgin birth. And, and besides being absolutely unique in history, it, this passage really helps us to understand the incarnation. You remember the incarnation is, is God being clothed in, in human flesh and, and, and residing among us. Now, if a person studies Mormon theology, and I'm just going to say Mormon theology is false, Mormons are, that is a, that's a cult, it's wrong, and one of the things that you'll notice if you study Mormon theology is they believe that God the Father had intimate relations with Mary, and that's where Jesus came from. 
They believe that, that this is a... And, and the reason for this is because they believe that God is an exalted man. And where do babies come from? Well, you know the rest. And so they think that Jesus is the result of exalted father, heavenly father, having relations with Mary. But is that what the text says? Well, no, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say anything about the father doing anything with Mary. So how does the pregnancy occur? Look at verse 35. Mary's asking the same thing. What does verse 35 say? Gabriel says, uh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So how does this pregnancy happen? And this is all wrapped up in the, in the Incarnation. How does it happen? It is a creative miracle of the Holy Spirit is a creative miracle of the Spirit of God. And we have to be careful here. Don't misunderstand and think that the Holy Spirit, and I'm, I'm going to try to be careful in the way that I say this, the Holy Spirit did not create the Son as the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus did not have his origin as a member of the Trinity in Bethlehem. Jesus is God. He has always been. There's never been a moment when Jesus was not, and there's never been a moment when Jesus was not God. He has always been God. He always will be God. And so then, so then what, is, what is this that I'm talking about with this being a creative miracle of the Holy Spirit? What I'm saying is, in this event, the Holy Spirit created the, the human baby that the second member of the Trinity was joined with. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 kind of spells it out. And then as you look through the text that we're, that we're looking at, I think you'll see this fleshed out a little bit more when we read carefully. Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, Therefore when he, when Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body... You have prepared for me. Now, if you look at the text, especially verse 35, I want you to notice a few things that are said. First, we see that this is an action by the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that. Next, it says that the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Now, the word that's translated as power is the same word that's used oftentimes in the, in the Gospels to speak of miraculous, wonder-working power. Not always, but many times that's, what, that's the word that's used. And when it talks about the, the, the power of the Most High will overshadow her, that word that's translated as overshadow has the idea of, of enveloping, of covering. It's only used five times in the New Testament, one time here, four other times, three of those four, it's used, you remember when Jesus took a couple of the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. You remember the, the, the glory of God shone around them. The, the, the Bible talks about this bright cloud that surrounded them, that enveloped them. And that's when Peter you know, sees, uh, sees Elijah and Moses and Jesus and says, Lord, it's good you brought us up here. Let's just build a, a tabernacle for all of you. And God speaks from the cloud and says, Hush. That's, that's my translation. Hush. Listen to my son. This is my son whom I'm well pleased, and so on and so forth. So this, 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 this cloud, this, this glory that surrounded them, same word that's used here that's translated as overshadow. 
And the last time that it's used is in the book of Acts in, in chapter uh, 5, I believe it is. And the Bible says they were bringing out their sick into the street that, that when Peter passed by, his shadow might fall upon them and they'd be healed. And that's, that's the same word that's translated here as overshadow. And so, so it's, it's, as you look at this, you say, well, Pastor, okay, just, just move it along. Whether it's that or you think it's real interesting, either way, we need to ask with all reverence, so what? Why did this happen? Why is this important to us? Well, the first reason it happened, and, and it's so important to us, is because as the sinless sacrifice, Jesus in his human nature could not be defiled by the corruption of the fall. See, when, when each of us is born, we're, we're all fallen sons and daughters of Adam. That means that our, our whole person is affected by sin. Our whole person, our desires, our thoughts, our words, they're all affected by sin. Even as a Christian, we still have trouble with, with our thought life, with the things that we say, the things that we watch, things that we do, right? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? We, we all have that. That is because of our fallen nature. And as the sinless Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus could not be corrupted by or have that corrupted human nature. Therefore, He could not be descended from Adam like everyone else. Second, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that because He shared in flesh and blood like, uh, like we do, that He rendered powerless the devil through His death. And then in, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 and, and chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus in his, in his time on earth was tempted in all things as we are and yet what? Without sin. And therefore because he's gone through it he can act as a merciful high priest and can sympathize and rush to our aid when we need it. In other words, what does this mean for us today? It means that if Jesus wasn't virgin born he couldn't have died on the cross for your sins. Because he wouldn't... He, 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 he would have been corrupted by the fall. And if he, didn't, if, if he couldn't die on the cross for your sins, you couldn't be saved. You say, what does this matter? Well, that's a pretty big thing. Your salvation depends on this fact. Let's move on. We have a peculiar pregnancy. Next, I want you to see a continuity of covenants. A continuity of covenants. Now, in the Bible, God often dealt with people, and sometimes people groups, on the basis of covenants. A covenant is an agreement. Sometimes it's unilateral. God says, I'm going to do this. Sometimes he says, if you do this, I will do that. So, for instance, he made a covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Okay, that is the Old Covenant. And, and the, that's where we get the word Old Testament from. Okay, and law is the key word here. So, God said... Do this. Do not do that. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't do this, that, or the other. But when Jesus died on the cross, he instituted the new covenant, the New Testament. You remember in, in the upper room before he went to the cross, Jesus said, Take, eat of this bread, and drink of this cup. And he said that this is my blood, which is the, the new covenant. It's going to be poured out for the many. So in his blood, he instituted, he ratified the new covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it prophesied about the new covenant. 
In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures, God said there was a day coming. The, the Old Covenant was going to pass away. The New Covenant was going to come. And we see that fulfilled in Christ. Now, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are separate. But they're not unrelated. Okay, they're not unhitched from one another. Now, the New Covenant is superior to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant brought death. The New Covenant brings life. The Old Covenant was written outwardly on tablets of stone. The New Covenant is written inwardly on the the tablet of our heart. The Old Covenant dealt primarily with our outward actions. The New Covenant deals with the inward, the motivations. The the, the New Covenant, the book of Hebrews said, the, the New Covenant replaced and made obsolete the old. But the new covenant that Jesus instituted is really a completion of what was started in the old. Okay, do you understand that? The new covenant is really a completion of what God started in the old. And we see that in, in our text today. It's, it's not specifically spelled out in our text today. But I want you to, I want you to just look at, look at some of these passages and, and think with me for a little bit. In the book of Genesis, in in Genesis chapter 22, God made a covenant with Abraham. Chapter 22, verse 18, God said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Notice he doesn't say many seeds. He says there's one seed, that's Jesus, one offspring, one descendant. And he doesn't say, "In, in your seed one nation is going to be blessed. What does he say? He says all nations, not just Israel. He says all nations. The Gentiles can come in as well. Now, guess who the only scripture writer is that's a Gentile? Luke. Luke is the only Gentile scripture writer. He gets that the gospel is for all people. And so, so this really harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant. But it also is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He said, Pastor, I didn't know there were that many covenants. Oh, yeah. God made a lot of covenants. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. If you look at your text again in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it talks about, uh, about Jesus having the throne of his father David and reigning over the house of Jacob forever and a kingdom that will have no end. Well, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and verse 16, God speaks of establishing the Davidic throne forever. You remember in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, it's a passage we always read it at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen to this. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It it began fulfilling the prophecy that was made in Daniel chapter 2. Now we talked about Daniel chapter 2 a few weeks ago, chapter 2 verse 44. Nebuchadnezzar is the king, he has a dream. It really, it really freaks him out. So he calls all the, 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 the counselors, the soothsayers, the wise men, all these people in. Asks for an interpretation. The dream was of a big statue made of different materials. Daniel comes in and says, uh, this, is, this is what it means. He goes through and in verse 44. Here's what he says. 
in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. He's talking about during the Roman Empire. And the kingdom and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will, but it will itself endure forever. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that all these times, all through the Old Testament, God has, has been dealing with people working the next step closer and closer to the point of salvation. The, 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 the apex of history was, was on the cross. It all pointed up to that, and we all look back to that. And all these covenants with Abraham and, and, and Israel and David and all these things, they all look ahead to the cross. And when we see what God is doing here, He's saying, I'm bringing, it about, I'm bringing about a closure to this. I'm bringing in the new covenant. This is what everything has been pointed to. Someone has well said long before me, the Old Testament is the new concealed the New Testament is the Old Revealed. You probably have heard that before. The Old Testament is the New Concealed. The New Testament is the Old Revealed. They go hand in hand. They shed light on one another. And finally, the last thing I want you to see very quickly, and we've already glanced at it, so I'm not going to spend much time here, is I want you to see the supernatural Son of God. We see it in the titles. Look at verses 32 and 35. He is called the Son of the Most High. Verse 35, He's called the Son of God. But this is, this is interesting. And Luke is not the only one that does this. But what, what Luke does is he will make a contrast and comparison with different people and groups. Sometimes it's, it, it's plainer than others, but it's there. So, for instance, he calls Jesus the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 38, I believe it is, he's been working his way through the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, so in Matthew we start at Abraham and go down to Jesus. In Luke, we start Jesus and go back. But he doesn't stop at Abraham. Where does he go? He goes all the way back to Adam. And here's what he calls Adam in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. He calls Adam the Son of God. Now, they're not the Son of God in the same sense, obviously. But he's setting up an inherent contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. Between Adam and and Jesus. Now what's the contrast? In the garden, what did Adam do? He was tempted and he failed. He was not obedient to God. The last Adam was perfectly obedient to God. We have him contrasted with with Israel. Because Israel wandered for many years, 40 years in the desert. They were tempted and they failed. They sinned. Jesus after his baptism, what did he do? He was in the wilderness 40 days. He was tempted, and yet without sin. Israel failed. Adam failed. Jesus succeeded. He had the victory. He is the supernatural Son of God. And because of his success, not only there, but in perfectly fulfilling the law. Listen, we can't do that. We can't keep the law. It's a pointless endeavor to even try to put your faith in that. He kept the law that we could not. And when we get saved, not only do we have our sins forgiven, that's, that's, that's wiping the slate clean. The Bible says that His righteousness is credited to our account. In other words, there's a, uh, there's a positive righteousness. And so, Jesus kept the law we can't keep. That is credited to us. 
Now listen, we can stand here and we can discuss the incarnation. We can talk about the the dual natures of Christ, the human nature and the divine nature, and how the two are are both found totally and completely in Christ, and yet the two are not intermingled, and he's not partly divine, partly human, or vice versa. We can do all that till we're blue in the face. But it doesn't do any good until the Spirit of God moves on our hearts. It is a supernatural work of God for people to come to faith in Christ. And I can, I can, I can show you the biblical proofs. I can give you the arguments. We can write it all down. But until the Spirit of God gets a hold of your heart, it's not going to do any good. And it could be that there's somebody here that, that even though I've not preached specifically about salvation, it could be that, that, that somebody here is, is, is feeling the Spirit's drawing today. You are convinced of your sin, you're convicted of your sin, you're in need of a Savior. And listen, there's no time like the present. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's not mental ascent. It's putting our faith in Christ. And this passage highlights the fact that, that we need to be careful thinkers, especially when it comes to the things of God. And some of these things people say, oh, well, that's, you know, the, the virgin birth and, and so on and so forth. That's not really that important. Listen, in, in the incarnation, God clothed himself in human form and dwelt among his people. Why? To glorify himself in the saving of a people that didn't deserve it. And that is, that is something that, that we as Christians should be thankful for. It should, it should cause us to look back at our own sinfulness. Even today, this week, our, our, our past, as we look back and realize we did not deserve salvation. But God gave it to us freely. It cost Christ everything, but he gave it to us as a gift. And that deserves gratitude. Watch you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, ask you bow your heads and close your eyes. If nobody looking around, I just want you to, to, to think back over your life. If you're a Christian, you know same as I do, you don't deserve to be one. You can try and, and keep your nose clean. You can try and live right and, and try and keep the law and do all those things, but you know that you fail. We all do, but Jesus didn't. Whereas Adam failed in the garden, we fail a daily life. He was successful. He had the victory. Just in the quiet of this time, I want you to, to, to ponder and to think about the grace that was given to you. If you're not a Christian today, I'm not talking about one in name only. But I mean, I'm talking about the person who's never repented of their sins. They've never put their faith in Christ. Jesus died to save sinners. Some scholars have, have said the whole thesis statement, the whole point of the Gospel of Luke is the verse where it says, 
that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. It may be that you're here today and you're lost. You've never turned to Christ for salvation. And I can tell you that if you will put your faith in him, he will save you. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not most, all. Our Heavenly Father... God, we thank you for your grace that you bestowed on us so freely, so undeservedly. And God, if there's somebody that um, has never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those of us who have, uh, have put our faith in us, we are going to heaven. We've had our sins forgiven. God, we just want to say thank you for the grace that you so richly bestowed upon us. And thank you that you commended your own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all those, all those covenants that you made, all those uh, workings out in history that you did, all led up to the cross. It wasn't an accident. It didn't catch you by surprise. It was part of your preordained plan. And we want to say thank you. God, we thank you that you work all things after the counsel of your will. And God, I, I pray that you would help each of us to rest in that, to take comfort in that. And as it applies to salvation, be so, so grateful. In Jesus' name.